0: As by way of uh, introduction, uh, my wife and I have been attending here for not very many months. At, uh, we were invited by uh, Scott and Melody, and we've uh, really enjoyed getting to know some of you. And uh, hope to be able to get to know more of you as time goes by. And you—you uh, you have been already a blessing to us. Uh, I'm getting stronger in more ways than I knew how thanks to Shane (laughs) and uh, Yeah, it's just been a good time of uh, fellowship already, and I thank you for the opportunity to uh, Minister to you from God's Word Uh, What I'm going to be doing today is uh, what I would consider an introductory message and uh, I'm going to be looking at the book of Hebrews So I'm anticipating the possibility of maybe getting opportunity to uh, speak to you again So uh, as I was saying to Christine my wife on the way here um, Since this is an introductory sermon and but you don't know if I'll ever get to preach again or when I'll get to preach again uh, I require you to remember everything that I say today so that the next time I preach I don't have to redo it again, okay? (laughs) How does that sound? I know, of course, that that is impossible for any of us to do, but by God's grace, uh, we will hold on to the things that he tells us from his word that are good and true, and we will be changed as we listen to his word. Imagine with me, if you would, an ancient road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a cool afternoon, as you see two men talking in low tones and making their way slowly towards Emmaus. As they continue on their journey, another man, walking more resolutely, comes alongside. What are you discussing, he asks. Without answering, they stop. You can see the fear and the sorrow in their eyes. Cautiously, they respond with a question of their own. Haven't you heard about the things that happened in Jerusalem? What things? He asks. Hesitantly, they explain that Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, has been crucified. Now, three days later, SOME WOMEN CLAIM HE IS ALIVE. OTHERS HAVE ALSO BEEN TO HIS TOMB AND FOUND IT EMPTY. THEIR NEW COMPANION TURNS TO THEM AND SAYS, HOW FOOLISH YOU ARE. HOW SLOW TO BELIEVE ALL THAT THE PROPHETS HAVE SPOKEN. DID NOT THE MESSIAH HAVE TO SUFFER THESE THINGS AND THEN ENTER HIS GLORY? AND BEGINNING WITH MOSES AND ALL THE PROPHETS, HE EXPLAINED TO THEM WHAT WAS SAID IN ALL THE SCRIPTURES CONCERNING HIMSELF. AS THEY LISTENED, THEIR HEARTS BURNED WITHIN THEM. HAVE YOU EVER WISHED YOU COULD HAVE BEEN PART OF THAT CONVERSATION? IT'S KIND OF FUN TO SPECULATE THAT THE AUTHOR OF HEBREWS WAS EITHER THERE HIMSELF OR HE HAD A LONG CONVERSATION WITH THOSE TWO MEN WHO HAD JESUS EXPLAIN THE SCRIPTURES TO THEM. For like our Lord on the road to Emmaus, Hebrews expounds ancient texts illustrating their connection to Jesus. The author of Hebrews loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves people and he loves to encourage us to put our entire faith, our trust in the new and living way, the complete and ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. Before we get into the book itself, indulge my preoccupation with history for a few minutes. It's going to be more than a few minutes. Let's explore briefly the story behind Hebrews' place as scripture. The main criteria to make it into the Bible are basically apostolic authorship, consistency of message, and usage by the church, by the early church. One of the issues with Hebrews, then, is exactly who wrote it. Unlike the letters of Paul or the other apostles, the writer doesn't identify himself in the opening greeting. He just starts in with, Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. Many scholars, based on the rhetorical structure of the letter, agree that Hebrews is probably a sermon preached To a first century church. Today, when you hear a pastor speak, they might start a sermon in a similar manner. But some prefer to start with personal remarks, like I just did at the beginning. Or as Pastor Paul often did, a pastor might start with a story to draw you in and to get you listening. Whoever wrote Hebrews was one of those individuals who thought, let us begin. Let us not waste time on preliminaries. Let's just get into the word right now. So if you didn't come ready to listen when he was speaking, it's possible that you might have missed the eloquence of his prologue. Speaking of eloquence, the Greek in the book of Hebrews is the most complicated and complex in the entire New Testament, which tells us something about the author He was, in fact, very well educated, and it is likely that his audience was as well. There are a few other clues about his identity, because he does mention that Timothy was released from prison, and he hopes that Timothy will join him, and together they will visit the church. The church was suffering persecution, and there must have been others in prison, as he writes... For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. He also writes about the Jewish temple as though it is still operational. And since we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, he must have been writing before that date. Therefore, he was a contemporary of at least part of the apostolic band. He knows Timothy. AND HE WAS WRITING BEFORE 70 AD AND THE CHURCH IS UNDER PERSECUTION. SO IT'S LIKELY THE PERSECUTION OF NERO THAT'S HAPPENING AT THIS TIME. HE TELLS US SALVATION WAS DECLARED BY THE LORD AND THEN ATTESTED TO US BY THOSE WHO HEARD. NOW IN THIS PHRASE, HE'S ACTUALLY PLACING HIMSELF AMONG THOSE WHO HEARD THE GOSPEL secondhand. The gospel or the salvation was attested to us by those who heard. So he didn't hear it from Jesus himself. And this is in sharp contrast from what Paul always said about himself. Paul always declared that he had received revelation directly from Jesus Christ. So perhaps my speculation that he might have been with Jesus on the road to Emmaus is mistaken but what about other historical evidence the earliest copies that we have of hebrews are from dated from around two hundred and they're in a collection of the letters of paul in fact all our manuscripts of the letters of paul they're always all together there's no copies of his letters that are separated they're always together in Often, typically, a codex, which is just a Latin word for book. Which, by the way, Christians invented books, if you didn't know that. Because we saw the need to keep all of the documents of the scriptures together. And what's a better way, what better way in ancient times than a book? Now we have computers. But Christians did actually invent books. In later times, the book of Hebrews actually moved around a bit in regards to its relationship to the other uh, Pauline letters. And by the year 600, it ends up where we now see it in our English Bibles. So based on this manuscript evidence, we can deduce that Hebrews was considered equivalent to Paul's other letters, but there seemed to be some uncertainty as to where to place it in the Pauline biosphere. However, this is pretty inconclusive because book arrangements were often based on practical criteria. It was easier to keep the books in order according to book length and Hebrews is a little shorter than 1 Corinthians and a little longer than 2 Corinthians, but you wouldn't want it to s- want to split up those letters, so if you're trying to keep things in order of length, it makes sense to put it first, even though like I said, it's actually shorter than 1 Corinthians. As the scribes had all kinds of Things that they had to try and do when they were writing out books by hand and they had a limited amount of uh, papyrus or parchments which is leather kind of book materials. And so, like I said, it was practical considerations like that that actually determined how they placed the books together. It was easier to keep the long books together if you went first with them so that you didn't have one book ending halfway through your parchment, or something like that, right? And there's actually manuscripts where a, a scribe is writing along, and then he realizes he's writing, running out of room, and he starts writing smaller and smaller as he gets to the end of the parchment. So, you, oh, he's writing this big, and all of a sudden it's this big, Oh, and he's, okay, now he's smaller because he didn't make the correct calculations. We can verify that Hebrews was quoted by church leaders as early as the first century in a letter from Rome by a fellow named Clement. Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Gaius, all from Rome, also quote from the letter. None of these men from the Western church still mention Paul as an author. In fact, Tertullian suggests that, well, maybe Barnabas was the author. You're probably familiar with Barnabas. He was a companion of Paul's and a Levite, so common sense to think of him as a possible author for a letter that relies so heavily on Old Testament interpretation. Meanwhile, over in Alexandria, the famed port city of Egypt, scholars took a different tact. Pantheus, who started a Christian school, in uh, Alexandria, that lasted for a good amount of time after his lifetime. His followers among them were Clement and Origen. They all quote from Hebrews, but in contrast with the Western church, they actually defend Paul's authorship. However, Origen, who's likely the most educated of these men, is reported as saying that the thoughts are those of the apostle, but the diction and phraseology are those of someone who remembered the apostolic teachings and wrote them down at his leisure. But who wrote the epistle in truth, God knows. So he was recognizing the differences in the Greek texts and thinking that possibly Paul wasn't the author. It seems he was coming to the realization that modern uh, scholars have come to. So what was going on? I offer this interpretation. Remember Jesus' warning, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. And re- recall this passage from Second Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The apostles and their close associates had already gathered writings. We know from Scripture that Paul requested, in 2 Timothy, Timothy to bring along his books and parchments. Peter puts Paul's letters in the same category as all Scripture when he says... Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The Greek word translated scripture is commonly used when referring to all scripture, including the Old Testament. So the Bible points to the fact that the apostles and their immediate associates already had been guided by the Holy Spirit to establish the validity of certain books to the exclusion of others. So too is the, in the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that he would guide them into all truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. With the passage of time, false prophets, at times, became very prominent and extremely popular. False teachings were what prompted the calling of what we call the church councils. Perhaps the most well-known is the Council of Nicaea in 325, called by the famous Emperor Constantine. This was in response to the Arian heresy which promoted the idea that Jesus was a created being. Athanasius, any of you know who Athanasius was? Let me introduce you to him. He was intermittently Bishop of Alexandria, and he became quite prominent at the Council of Nicaea. He wrote against Arian thought, And he used Hebrews chapter 1 in his argument to prove that Jesus is God. After a hotly contested debate, the majority accepted the declaration that Jesus was begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. There was a good deal of controversy about the use of the word substance there because it's a non-biblical word, but it was impossible at the council to use biblical words because the Arians continually would redefine the biblical words. So you could use firstborn, uh, these different kinds of biblical words that are outside of my head at the moment, but these kinds of words, you couldn't use the biblical words because, like I said, the Arians redefined them. So they, Compromised by using a non-biblical word, just like we use the word Trinity, which is a non-biblical word, but it, defu- it describes what's in the Bible. So in order to g- get a word that actually, actually gets at who Jesus Christ is, they use this word. And the majority agreed, that makes sense. That goes with the scripture. And the, so the battle was won. But the war actually raged on. Later on, Athanasius was banned from Alexandria on a few different occasions as there were actually emperors who followed the Arian teachings. At times, Athanasius was on the run from Arians who probably meant, him, meant to do him harm. And the story is told of his escape down the River Nile on one occasion. He was being pursued by canoe or some kind of rowboat, and his uh, pursuers were actually gaining on him, and their boat was coming alongside of his. But as was often the case in ancient times, they didn't know what Athanasius actually looked like. And so they, as they were closing the gap, coming up on his boat, they called out, have you seen Athanasius? Without hesitation, he replied, he's just ahead of you. And he was just ahead of them. So they quickly paddled on. So Athanasius was spared imprisonment or whatever they were trying to do to him so that he could stand up for truth. And later he came back to Alexandria again and continued the battle. But he didn't see the fruition of that fight for the uh, deity of Christ actually happen. It was one of the later church councils after his death. But he is an example, and these, this kind of historical content is an example of how doctrinal issues rise and fall, and how we need to learn from the scriptures and these examples and stand firm on the truth. At the same time, we need to let secondary matters remain secondary matters. And this is where an understanding of the history of the letter to the Hebrews converges with wisdom in doctrinal issues. There was some controversy about the inclusion of Hebrews in the canon and Paul's authorship, or lack thereof, was part of the discussion. My assertion is that God the Holy Spirit guided the thoughts and convictions of men who, when confronted with the arguments against Paul's authorship, were willing to compromise. Simultaneously, God moved to maintain Hebrews as part of his divine revelation. In a like manner, We need to be constantly in God's Word so that we are ready and willing to stand up for truth and able to discern the Spirit's will in attempting to love one another in the face of disagreement. This is a difficult task, and it's not always possible. Like Athanasius, there are times when we must let the opposition go by. If the Scriptures are being distorted, they are doing so to their own destruction. May God have mercy on all of us as we face modern heresies. Okay, let's switch gears. I know that was a lot of history stuff. I don't know, for some of you, maybe as soon as I said the word history. (laughs) But uh, personally, I like history. So hopefully you were able to gain something out of that. Let's turn our thoughts to some of the similarities between Hebrews and Paul. Both Philippians and Hebrews present Christ as one who is both humble and supreme. Paul speaks very plainly about Christ's humility. Jesus was willing to take on human form. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Hebrews, the, carnation, the incarnation is described more poetically. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Human form and flesh and blood are equivalent in value. Though the expression is different. Paul describes Jesus as becoming obedient, while Hebrews uses the phrase, making the founder of their salvation perfect. Both of these require a bit of explanation. In what way did Jesus, who is described as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, need to become obedient or be made perfect? Isn't God already perfect? That is in fact part of the point of the Incarnation While sharing in our humanity Christ without losing his divinity Learned like we do what it means to grow mature face temptation and eventually to face death Allow me to quote He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In his humility, Jesus submits himself to a human experience, learns and grows like a young plant. WALKS IN OBEDIENCE TO HIS FATHER'S WILL, AND YET REMAINS WITHOUT SIN. SOMETIMES WE SUFFER, BUT OUR LORD'S SUFFERING WAS TO THE POINT OF THE SHEDDING OF HIS BLOOD FOR THE SAKE OF OTHERS, THAT THROUGH DEATH HE MIGHT DESTROY THE ONE WHO HAS THE POWER OF DEATH, THAT IS, THE DEVIL. JESUS DID DEFEAT DEATH. AND THIS IS NOT SOMETHING THAT ANY MAN CAN DO. HE IS THE WAY, THE TRUTH, AND THE LIFE. LIFE IS RESIDENT IN HIS BEING AS THE CREATOR AND SUSTAINER OF EVERYTHING THAT EXISTS. HIS NAME IS ABOVE EVERY NAME, AND HIS NAME IS MORE EXCELLENT THAN THE NAME OF ANY OTHER BEING, HUMAN OR ANGELIC." IN FACT, ANGELS ARE ONLY MESSENGERS OR SERVANTS to the one true God, we should never confuse the two. As Hebrews will assert later in verse 6 of chapter 1, and again when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Who exactly is worthy of worship? I'm reminded of John's reaction in Revelation 22. Do you recall the angels that were speaking to him? And John is awestruck by the angelic messenger, and he actually falls down at the feet of the angel and wants to worship him. What does the angel do? You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers. And also in Revelation, John is looking at the throne and he hears the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What are they doing? They're all offering up worship to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the firstborn of all creation, fulfilling the command. LET ALL GOD'S ANGELS WORSHIP HIM. ONLY GOD IS WORTHY OF WORSHIP. HEY, JESUS MUST BE GOD. JESUS IS WORTHY OF WORSHIP BECAUSE HE IS, IN FACT, GOD. GOD IN THE FLESH. YOU CAN'T WORSHIP A MAN. REMEMBER THE TEN COMMANDMENTS? both Paul in his letters and Hebrews extol Jesus as the great image bearer, the great inheritor, and the great sustainer. sustainer. Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, while Hebrews proclaims the Christ as the exact imprint of his nature. The language in view is like a coin, stamped with the perfect Exact impression. So the invisible is now something that we can handle, taste. And if it's a living coin, like Jesus is, we can hear him. He speaks to us. Many of our senses, I was thinking, is a sense of taste actually involved in this? Well, people do sometimes bite coins. You know, (laughs) you see that. Our senses are involved in the fact that Jesus is the Christ in the flesh. And unlike Adam, the firstborn of humanity, who is also said to be made in the image of God, the new Adam remains without sin. Adam was given the task to care for creation, but Jesus was himself the creator of the universe, which we, all of us together, in Adam failed to maintain. Both Paul and Hebrews praise Jesus as the one who by his own power keeps the world moving. We could go on and do many other parallels between Hebrews and Pauline thought. There's warnings, warnings not to abandon the faith. The use of the Old Testament examples replete throughout Pauline letters. AND IN HEBREWS. AND OF COURSE, THE REDEFINITION OF WHAT IT MEANS TO WORSHIP GOD IN A WORLD WHERE THE SACRIFICIAL SYSTEM HAS BEEN superseded BY ONE SACRIFICE. ONE COMPLETE AND TOTAL SUPERIOR SACRIFICE. THAT OF OUR LORD JESUS CHRIST ON THE CROSS. BUT WE'LL LEAVE ALL THOSE FOR NOW. And go on. So Paul and Hebrews do have many similarities. But it seems these are not enough to support Paul as the author. It is understandable that modern scholarship has largely abandoned the idea of Paul's authorship. Because it is hard to get around the fact that the author seems to identify himself as one who became a Christian after hearing the message from someone else. And as I've mentioned, the Greek style is quite different than any of Paul's letters. Some have argued that perhaps Paul dictated the letter to Luke or some other scribe. It is not an uncommon practice. You remember Pastor Paul mentioning that in our study of First and 2 Peter. One essay proposed that, well, maybe Priscilla is the author. Though that seems unlikely since the author uses a male participle to describe himself in chapter 11. Others have argued for Apollos, who is described in Acts as a man learned in scriptures who is able to prove that Jesus was the Messiah using the scriptures. He's a good candidate. But frankly, I just don't know. But I know, and you probably Feel this felt this coming already who the ultimate author is God's the author God is the ultimate author When I went to Bible college and studied Hebrew at uh, a seminary in Saskatoon I Had no clue about any of this background material to the Bible and I think there's probably Many people in churches who don't know that there is a background to the history of the Bible. And sometimes I think that we're scared to talk about it. But you know, we shouldn't be. Because if you send your young people into a seminary where there could possibly actually be men teaching who, like the ones that I look back on now, I consider them basically to be agnostics. And you send them into a seminary without any prior knowledge to any of the things that they might be exposed to. It's kind of a dangerous thing. And especially like for myself, I actually didn't know the Lord personally when I was attending Bible College and going to university. So when I got there and heard all these things and saw the attitude of these learned people, I was kind of like messed up by the time I got out of that situation. But you know, the Christian scriptures are not like those that claim they somehow got a revelation of golden tablets that dropped down into their laps or some other version of that that other religions have where they think that they had a perfect document dropped down to them and that's what they have. When history actually tells us that, well, for example, the Islam religion, They had many different kinds of documents, and they actually got together and burned them and stuff so that people wouldn't know they had all these, but we actually still do know that that happened. So there is a history to how the Bible came together, and we don't need to fear it, not at all. Because that history was defined and ordered by the God who ordained that those books are what they are. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. From 2 Peter. And it tells us in Hebrews 1, verse 3, God upholds the universe by the word of his power, and it could be translated, bears all things to its intended end by the word of his power. I've got a picture of Atlas there holding the world up, because sometimes I think we think of that verse in those terms like God's holding the world up, but that's not at all what is in view here. This is a dynamic picture. God is working in the world. He's working here right now. He's working in your life by the things that are happening in your life today, the things that happened yesterday, the things that will happen tomorrow. God is at work in those circumstances. And if God is doing that, and he is, When it comes to the scriptures, we can be confident that God was involved intricately in bringing them to where they are now. We can have confidence in the scriptures. God the Holy Spirit moved in the lives of the human authors in such a way that the exact words that God intended us to have are there. So when people tell you that the Bible has been changed through various church councils or other meetings or actually modern books, they just make up stuff. And that's not even any remotely close to historical. But they write it in books, and people read the books, they make documentaries, and most of it is just complete garbage. So when people tell you that the Bible's been changed anything that we have is there by the sovereign hand of God and he wants it to be there There were men who sought to distort God's purposes example the Arians but God works things together for good There are complexities and circumstances which are difficult to reconcile and to understand and I think perhaps the Christian community is somewhat to blame because we just often don't even live by the scriptures ourselves. So if, you, if it's true, well, how come you guys aren't following it? That's what the world says. And I think the, the plethora of translations available in the Western world is also sometimes part of the problem. It's confusing sometimes, you know, you read all these different versions, That's, Bible seems to mean so many different things. With careful study, you can see that, no, there's just a little bit of a different translation here because of different translation techniques. But like I said, it, it's only in the Western world, actually, where this is an issue. Because if you go to Holland, for example, I'm pretty sure they just have, like, a Dutch Bible, there's not, like, a million different versions of it. And I think the case is similar in Germany, in China, actually, they have a Bible that's in the old Cantonese, which most people in China can't actually understand. So they're working on making new versions there. But, so so the, that can be an issue. But at the same time, God does use various means to communicate with his people, and the different translations are helpful in that task. So we don't need to be, like, scared about the different translations either. Just enjoy what God has given us. God works in our lives, as I mentioned already, to accomplish the good of transforming us towards Christ-likeness, just as he worked to bring us the scriptures that are invaluable in that goal. At times, the complexities and particular circumstances, even in our own lives, may leave us speechless or even bring us to a place of sorrow. But take heart dear brothers and sisters, God is at work. He loves you and is working to bring your life and, in fact, the entirety of world history to a God-ordained end. So let's keep the faith. Let's stand firm. Let's not be discouraged by the process Because God is a God of all circumstances, and he sovereignly brings his will to pass even in the face of vigorous opposition. The Bible stands, and we stand in testimony to its truth. God has always been involved in history. In fact, he's the author of it. Hebrews 1.1 tells us, long ago at many, that could be various times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's a great variety of ways in which God worked to call the people unto himself and to establish a nation within which the Messiah would be foretold, foreshadowed, and in the fullness of time, be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. THIS IS EVIDENT FROM A QUICK OVERVIEW OF BIBLICAL HISTORY. OH, MORE HISTORY? JUST REAL QUICK. (laughs) IN THE BEGINNING, GOD SPOKE. HE COMMUNED WITH ADAM AND EVE, SAVED NOAH AND HIS FAMILY FROM A WORLDWIDE FLOOD, CALLED OUT THE PATRIARCHS, BROUGHT A NEW NATION, ISRAEL, OUT OF EGYPT established this nation as a vehicle for judges, prophets, kings, and historical events which would facilitate the arrival of the Messiah, our Lord in the flesh. He was and he is the culmination of a long history of God's intervention in real specific events and in the lives of real people like you and me. There were times when it seemed that God was silent. Tells us in 1 Samuel 3.1, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And there's a number of psalms and the prophets themselves who cry out, How long, O Lord? But even in those epochs of silence, God is holding up the universe and moving it to its intended end. And when it seems that God is silent in your life, he's still working. He's working to accomplish his purposes in your life. He is creative and infinite in his knowledge. Sometimes we might hear someone or perhaps we'll even say things like that ourselves, and there's nothing particularly wrong with saying it But sometimes we might be too quick to assume We know the mind of God when we say that well God's doing this thing here must be this that he's doing Well, you know God is omniscient When he moves to accomplish something there could be a whole myriad of things that he's working to accomplish so, from our finite viewpoint, our one particular definition of this one event might be a little too finite. Ultimately, though, everything will be made to praise Him, whether in abject submission or in enthusiastic praise. Every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to bow. In that day, WE WILL SEE FIRSTHAND THE GLORY AND MAJESTY OF GOD. BUT UNTIL THEN, GOD IS USING, AS I'VE BEEN SAYING, EVERY CIRCUMSTANCE TO WORK OUT THINGS FOR GOOD FOR HIS PEOPLE AND TO THE PRAISE OF HIS GLORY. THINK ABOUT THE COMPLEXITY OF THE BIBLE FOR JUST A MINUTE. THERE'S MANY of diff- DIFFERENT genres, KINDS OF WRITINGS. THERE'S BOOKS OF LAW, HISTORY, POETRY. LAMENTATIONS, PROPHECY, THEOLOGY, PARABLES, GOSPELS, APOCALYPSE. WE COULD ACTUALLY GO ON AND PROBABLY NAME A FEW MORE. MAYBE YOU'RE ALREADY THINKING OF SOME OTHER ONES. THERE ARE OCCASIONS WHERE PROPHETS ARE SIMPLY GIVEN WORDS TO WRITE DOWN VERBATIM. AT OTHER TIMES, THEY RECEIVE DREAMS AND VISIONS THAT EXPLAIN OR PREDICT WHAT'S HAPPENING, OR WHAT'S HAPPENING IN THE FUTURE, WHAT WILL HAPPEN. Angels come as mediators between God and man. Messengers from other countries were sent to encourage and enlarge the people of God. Pagan kings were moved to do God's will to reestablish a lost nation. God was never without the ability to accomplish his will. Even when his people could not understand how things would work out for good. Sometimes the world does look really bleak. But take solace in this fact today. God hasn't left us alone. He hasn't left you alone, whatever your situation is. As the men walked to amaze that dreary afternoon three days after the death of Jesus, they could not see a way forward. They did not imagine that God had created a new and living way, an ultimate sacrifice for humanity to be freed from their slavery. In the past, God had saved Israel from physical slavery. Now God saves us from a different form of slavery. All the plans and purposes of God have come to fruition in the arrival of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The incarnation and Jesus' death on the cross marks the beginning of a new era. The New Testament writers call this the last days. With Christ's arrival, there is a transition from the old ways, to the new and living way. Paul summarizes, summarizes in Galatians, once we were children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Earlier in that same book, he writes, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Both the Apostle Paul in this passage and the letter to the Hebrews are addressing people who are contemplating the old way of thinking and behaving. It's easy to live with the familiar, especially in a society that rewards the old ways. External religious activities can make us feel comfortable, comfortable about how we are doing in our relationship with our Creator. Offer a sacrifice, give some money, ATTEND A RELIGIOUS GATHERING, TEACH SUNDAY SCHOOL, DO A GOOD DEED, ISN'T THAT WHAT GOD EXPECTS? SOMETIMES THIS CONCEPT WAS, AND STILL IS, SOMEWHAT DIFFICULT TO GRASP. OFFERING SACRIFICES, ATTENDING ELABORATE RELIGIOUS CEREMONIES, THESE WERE PART OF EVERYDAY LIFE. EVEN THE polytheists DID IT. BUT IN CHRIST, All those old things have passed away. In our day, if you ask someone, are you headed to heaven? They might say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Look at all the things I've done, even the things I'm doing right now. I'm going to this church over here. I'm part of this group. And, you know, as humans, we do tend to weigh our good deeds against our bad, and we often... uh, Give ourselves a much higher mark than we deserve But does it really matter With this new and living way it seems as though things maybe have changed Has God changed his standards? Well, we have to look at the scriptures To know for sure Later in Hebrews for example, we are told Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peter has told us, be holy in all your conduct. And he follows up with a command from, oh no, the Old Testament. Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. And one of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect. Just as your heavenly father is perfect. No, oh, it seems like God and His holiness is still the standard. So I would venture to say that living a life characterized by sin is living on the edge. It's a dangerous place to be. So there is a new and living way, but it's not completely divorced. From the Old Testament There is a good deal of continuity from the old to the new Some modern preachers want to unhitch us from the Old Testament But I think on the contrary If you look at how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament They quote it often and they allude to it all the time and When they do quote it they treat it with respect and deference And Hebrews will go on to argue that it has always been faith that distinguished God's people from those who were not part of God's family. So, what exactly has changed? It's the difference in the quality of the sacrifice. It's the fact sacrifice of the one and only Son of God. Christ's sacrifice is supreme and complete. There's no need for continued religious activities. Oh, you're telling me I don't have to go to church? (laughs) No, I'm not telling you that. The standards for behavior are still there as well. But for each one of us, our acceptance before God is not based on those things that we do externally. OUR ACCEPTANCE IS BASED ON WHAT WE HAVE DONE IN RELATIONSHIP TO THE SACRIFICE THAT CHRIST MADE ON THAT CROSS. SIN IS STILL A PROBLEM FOR HUMANITY. IF WE SAY WE HAVE NO SIN, WE ARE LYING TO OURSELVES, JOHN TELLS US. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So how do we deal with the command to be holy, as many scriptures tell us to be? Well, if we read a little bit further into Hebrews, we see... SEE TO IT THAT NO ONE FAILS TO OBTAIN THE GRACE OF GOD. DOES THAT RING A BELL IN YOUR MIND? IT DOES IN MINE. IT TURNS MY MIND TO THE BOOK OF EPHESIANS. FOR BY GRACE YOU HAVE BEEN SAVED THROUGH FAITH, AND THIS IS NOT YOUR OWN DOING. IT IS THE GIFT OF GOD, NOT A RESULT OF WORKS, SO THAT NO ONE MAY BOAST. GRACE, NOT JUST SOMETHING WE SAY BEFORE WE EAT, which is coming up fairly soon, so don't worry. But grace is, in biblical terms, the undeserved favor of God. And that's what we rely on. God gives us his favor through faith, even though we haven't earned it. Isn't that an awesome reality? God gives us grace. In response, what do we do? We turn away from sin. In fact, as we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord, we run away from it. We try to, at least. And we know that even in these good actions, it's only by God's grace that we stand. Now we're right near the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ making purification for sins, sitting down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. We exalt his name as above every other name. We see in our Savior the exact imprint of God. We long to be transformed into his likeness. And we acknowledge that as we put our trust in him, there's no need for further sacrifices. In these last days, in our days, today, God has spoken to us by his son. God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ, the inheritor of everything. The great son, king, and priest, Jesus is the perfect reflection of God's glory. I know I've said that a number of times, but I I think you can't say it enough. Jesus is an exact representation of God's nature. Jesus is moving the universe towards its intended end. Jesus has accomplished the forgiveness and purification of sin that we all need. I know I sure need it. Jesus is symbolically sitting in the position of honor and power, performing the high priestly duty of maintaining our position before God as his brothers and sisters. We can live by faith in him without fear, without condemnation. Jesus has the name that is above every other name, whether on earth or in heaven. Trust in his once and all, once and for all sacrifice and in his ongoing intercession for you and you will not fall. When we are young, we often try to imitate our parents or our siblings and we just do this because that's how life works but invariably their example is not perfect. And sometimes trying to imitate somebody else is like an anchor around the neck of our own personality. You just can't be like your brother or your sister or your mother or your father. And in the end, a lot of times we don't want to be, but when we're young, we are doing that. But we have an elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is worthy of our trust, our worship, and our imitation. Jesus has destroyed the power of death, and we're free to live a life of joyful submission to his example. He is our Savior, but he's also our example. In Christ, we have one origin with the king and sustainer of the universe. May we live our lives accordingly. In closing, join me again on the road to Emmaus. This time, you're by yourself and you're walking down this old dusty road. And you're a bit discouraged. And like I said, you're alone. But as you MEANDER ALONG. YOU HEAR THE FOOTSTEPS OF SOMEONE BEHIND YOU, AND IT SOUNDS LIKE HE'S WALKING MUCH FASTER AND STRONGER THAN YOU ARE WALKING. And YOU GET THAT STRANGE FEELING IN YOUR NECK WHEN YOU KNOW SOMEONE'S BEHIND YOU, AND YOU WONDER, SHOULD I RUN? BUT SUDDENLY, A SENSE OF CURIOSITY, OF PEACE, Almost comes over you, and you decide to look back. And the man who's gaining on you calls out to you, what are you thinking about? So you turn and look, and you're unsure sure of how to respond. Do I know you? And suddenly, you see a smile as wide and as deep as the ocean. And he reaches out his hand, and he softly touches your shoulder. And he says, walk with me, and I will explain all things to you.